Let's come before the Lord in prayer. Lord God Almighty, we are thankful for this week and thy providence over us, and this week thy safety, for thy keeping, for thy governing of us, O God. And Lord, we do give thee praise, we give thee honor, we give thee glory and power and dominion, O Lord. We stand in awe of thy greatness, of thy goodness, of thy continual steadfast covenant faithfulness and love to us, thy people, O God. Lord, we thank Thee for the opportunity to gather together in safety and peace in this country at this time, O Lord, and we do pray for our civil magistrates, O God. Lord, raise up godly men to lead us, men who fear Thee and who obey Thy law. Let laws which are in accordance with Thy moral law, with Thy word, be instituted and established not only in this state, but also in this nation and indeed in the entirety of the earth, O God. Lord, we pray, O Lord, that the scourge of abortion would be removed from our land, O Lord. It would cease entirely, O God, that sanity would be restored to our people in regards to gender and to sexuality, O God. And Lord, that thou wouldst bless our our magistrates, our governor, our president, O Lord. Give them wisdom. Give them grace to rule this people in the fear of thee. O God, we thank thee for thy church throughout the world, and we do pray for her, O God, wherever she is to be found. Please defend her where she is being persecuted. Please correct her where she errs. Please strengthen her hands, O God, and give increase and blessing to the labor of her hands, that churches would be planted and established, that ministers would be raised up, elders and deacons and faithful church members in those places, and dutiful families, O God. And indeed, that thy gospel would go out into all the world with blessing And the glory be brought to thy Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, O God. Lord, we thank thee for the members of our church, O Lord. We thank thee for our OPC, for our pastor, our elders, and our deacons. Please give these men wisdom, give them guidance, give them discernment, give them faith and strength as they lead, guide, and serve us, thy people, thy church, O Lord. We pray for those in our congregation who are suffering with various illnesses, with loss, with grief, with pain, with daily sorrow, O God, who feel weighed down, O Lord. Lord, we pray for comfort to be given, for healing to be given, and for grace to be given, that they might be established in all hope and peace and truth in their Lord Jesus Christ through believing by the power of thy Holy Spirit, O God. Lord, please cause ROPC to be a strong church, to not stray from thy word, to not stray from thy way, O God, that we'd be a people who recognize and, and see our great need of thee, our Lord and our Savior. Let us be people of prayer. Let us be people of, of thy word, O God, committed to its faithful proclamation and its faithful implementation in our own lives, in the church, and in the broader society as a whole, O Lord. Lord, now as we turn to open thy word, we ask for thy blessing, we ask for thy help, that the same spirit which did inspire these words would also illuminate them to our minds, that we'd be able to see the glories and beauties that are contained therein, and also to live them out. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. Amen. If you have a copy of the scriptures, please take it and open it to the book of Ephesians. Tonight we'll be doing an intro to the book of Ephesians, talking about some of the main themes, some of the background to the book of Ephesians, and we're only really going to be expounding verses 1 and 2, but I do want to read verses 1 all the way down to 14 of the first chapter together now, 
this time. Hear now the word of the Lord, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Dear congregation, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Joel asked, Pastor Joel asked me if I would like to teach on Wednesday nights and to be thinking about something to teach through. And many years ago when I was leading a Bible study, probably 2010, I was still a very young Christian, uh, still very new to Calvinism and Reformed theology at that time. I actually taught a study through the book of Ephesians at that time, and I thought it'd be good to revisit all these years later for me. Uh, A lot of things have taken place in between there. I've planted churches, I've pastored churches, uh, I've been a youth pastor, I've served here for two years. thought it would be interesting to come back and revisit the book of Ephesians now, and there's just so much richness in the book of Ephesians. The Apostle Peter, the Apostle Peter tells us that uh, there are some things that are difficult and hard to understand in the epistles of Paul, and while that is certainly true, and there are sections of and, and specific parts of the book of Ephesians that will be difficult, that commentators disagree on, theologians disagree on, that will cause us to take time to dig down deep into it, I think Ephesians is one of the most straightforward of his gospels and, and, and or of his letters in many ways. The, the glories and the beauties of Christ and the church of Christ and who we are as the body of Christ in union with Christ are set on display for us. And therefore, how we should live as the church of Christ is displayed for us in the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians is part of what is called the prison epistles, which would include Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, some of the books that uh, Paul wrote likely from Rome when he was in house arrest uh, to these various churches. So again, this evening we'll be looking at a, a kind of a broad introduction to the book of Ephesians, looking at its author, its background, some of its main themes, and we'll be looking 
really only digging down deep into verses 1 and 2 this evening. So let's look at the author, the recipients, and the occasion of the book of Ephesians. We see here in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. So who is the author of the book of Ephesians? Well, the letter right there claims to be written by the apostle Paul. The Bible's teaching about its own inspiration, that every word of God, or that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is therefore profitable, as well as the Bible's own teaching on its own infallibility, should stop our mouths at that point. It says that Paul wrote it, therefore Paul wrote it. And until the 1800s, with the rise of modernity, the church has universally accepted Pauline authorship for the book of Ephesians, that the Apostle Paul wrote it. They, they would read that it's from the Apostle Paul, and they would believe that it's from the Apostle Paul. So it wasn't until really the, the 1800s, the mid-1800s, that this became a debatable topic. Many modern scholars reject Pauline authorship on two grounds. Even those who consider themselves evangelical or conservative uh, will question or, or even reject Pauline authorship. And they do this on two grounds primarily. The style, the first reason they'll give is that the style, when you read the book of Ephesians, the style doesn't seem to be Pauline. The second reason they'll give is the author doesn't seem to be familiar with those to whom he's writing. So those are the two main reasons they'll give. There's some other reasons they'll flesh out in support of those two main reasons, but that it doesn't seem to be Pauline, a discussion of style. It doesn't seem like Paul's style of writing. Well, discussions of style are ultimately subjective, aren't they? Especially when we're dealing with so small a sample size as the Pauline epistles, which there are 13 Pauline epistles, 14 if you include Hebrews, which the church historically has. I would would as well, but okay, let's say you get rid of Hebrews as Pauline. You have 13 that are for sure, at least claimed to be, written by Paul. So discussions of style are, are subjective anyway, but especially when we have a small corpus, a small body of material like the Pauline epistles. How do you know that in one circumstance, when he's writing to one church, he's not going to have a different style? Imagine if you're writing a letter to your, uh, uh, your mother, and if you're texting your boss, or you're, you're texting your 13-year-old son, it's going to be different than the way that you might text or write a letter to, to a congressman, or to a president, or to a group, or give a speech in front of a group. So conversations and discussions of style ultimately kind of fall flat on their face at this point, I think, and most, uh, most scholars who would, who would accept Pauline authorship also think that this is kind of a, a lame excuse to reject Pauline authorship. The second objection, I think, can be easily answered, and that second objection was, well, Paul doesn't seem to be familiar with the people he's writing to. The second objection can be easily answered when we remember the, the wide reach that Paul's ministry had in the area surrounding Ephesus during his three years there. In Acts 19.10, we read, and we'll be in Acts 19 in a, in a few minutes as well, Acts 19 says, "...all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus." That's the extent to which Paul's ministry uh, had taken the gospel, had taken the word of the Lord in and around Ephesus and in Asia Minor at that time, that, that all who dwelt in Asia, the text says, heard the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. Through his ministry, many churches had been planted in the surrounding towns and in the surrounding villages, and 
Paul, yes, may have been unfamiliar with some of the members of those congregations or some of those congregations entirely, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean that he was unfamiliar with the, the, the author of Ephesians, was completely unfamiliar with who the people he's writing to. No, he's, he's familiar with the church in Ephesus. He labored there for three years. But he might be unfamiliar with some of the people, some of the congregations there. So I think that's a pretty good answer to the second objection, and many conservative, reformed uh, commentators also will give that response. New Testament scholars continue to debate Pauline authorship of Ephesians. I have one commentary on the book of Ephesians, uh, one of many, but one of them by by Horner. He has a 60-page defense of Pauline authorship for the book of Ephesians. At the beginning, in the intro to the commentary, there's 60 pages dealing with all of the recent arguments and the the arguments have been brought forward over the past couple hundred years uh, against Pauline authorship for the book of Ephesians. So that's how debated it is nowadays. And I think all this really does is demonstrate, once again, as as I think we've said here before, that sometimes you, you need to go to seminary to get this dumb, don't you? You need to spend years in a German seminary to be so dumb that you can read that Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and then think, well, Paul didn't write it, and here's 50 reasons why. For our purposes, the text says that Paul is the, auth- the author, and therefore we believe it. As we have said before, quoting from Herman Bovink, uh, when God speaks, let us be silent. Uh, Calvin said, when, when God speaks and he opens his mouth, let us close ours and open our ears. So if the text of Scripture tells us that Paul uh, is the author of this book, then we should simply believe it in faith. The testimony of Scripture in other places also supports Pauline authorship. Again, as we said, and we'll look at this a little bit later, Paul spent more time ministering in Ephesus than he did in any other city in his ministry. It makes sense that he would send an epistle to this church, to to the churches in that area, the congregations in the area of Ephesus and surrounding Ephesus. It it makes sense that, that Paul, having the pastor's heart that he does, would send a letter, would send an epistle kind of summating the theology, the points and the loci of theology and doctrine and living that he had expounded to them in his ministry, that he would kind of put that in a condensed place for them, which is what I think Ephesians is. Paul identifies himself as the author, and Paul identifies himself also as an apostle. Was an apostle? Well, it means a messenger, an ambassador. He's a, a, a messenger, an ambassador, a representative of Jesus Christ on earth. But he also says that he's not this by his own will. Paul's an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. The risen Lord Jesus was the one who had commissioned Paul to be his chosen vessel, to bear his name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, as we read in Acts 9.15. Paul didn't appoint himself to this role of apostle, in other words, nor did any other man. You recall the Damascus Road. It wasn't the, the arguments of other people that persuaded him to embrace Christianity, which he was currently persecuting, to finally bow the knee to Christ. It didn't come from reading a book of apologetics. It didn't come from people persuading him and trying to tell him it was a good idea. No, it came from the risen Lord Christ himself appearing to the Apostle Paul. And this gives him more authority as he writes to the Ephesian church. He is what he is by the free and gracious will of God 
alone. Paul is, a, is an apostle, but he is, as an apostle, he's also a member of the church of Christ. And thus, as a member of the church of Christ, he, the, what is said about him here, what he says about himself, that he is what he is by the will of God, can be applied to all the other members of the church of Jesus Christ. And this will of God language is a constant refrain of Paul throughout Ephesians, isn't it? We see it time and time again. We even saw it just in the text we read earlier. Like Paul, each member of the church in Ephesus and each member of the church today is who they are by the will of God. We can all trace our calling, not not only to salvation, but to everything else in our life, to this fount, which is the will of God. We are what we are by the will of God. The only reason that the Ephesians are members of the body of Christ, that they're members of the church, whether they're laymen, whether they're pastors, whether they're apostles, is according to the good pleasure of God's will, as we read in verse 5. So that's who wrote it, the Apostle Paul, the man who was called, the man who was chosen, the man who was elected by the will of God, by the risen Lord Jesus Christ himself, to be an apostle, to be a messenger to the church. Okay, well, who is he writing to? Well, again, we'll turn to the text. It says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul writes to the saints who are in Ephesus. He writes first and foremost to those whom he administered to for three years in and around Ephesus, but he's also writing to all those in that area who had joined the church since his ministry, the the area of Ephesus. It's kind of like when we talk about, people ask you who aren't from Arizona, where do you live? You say, I'm from Phoenix. I live in Phoenix because they're probably not familiar with Mesa or Apache Junction, especially you you get raised eyebrows when you say you're from Apache Junction. But if you say Phoenix, they get the general area, but Phoenix is much broader than that, so too for Ephesus. He's writing to all the saints, all of the congregations and the church of Jesus Christ that are around the area of Ephesus, some of whom he knew and some of, yet, some of whom he had not yet had the opportunity to get to know. And I think that again answers back to the second objection that people have against Pauline authorship. There is good evidence from manuscript evidence and from church tradition that this letter, the, the letter, the epistle to the, to the Ephesian church, may have been intended to be a circular letter by the Apostle Paul. A circular letter that would, be, that would be distributed and passed around to all of the different churches, not only around Ephesus, but indeed in the entirety of Asia Minor at that time. And this makes sense because Ephesus was one of the most important cities of the region, and so was its church. From Ephesus, Paul's letter would have, been, would have been copied, and it would have then been distributed and taken by people who wanted a copy to other places, other churches in Asia Minor. The people to whom Paul writes, he calls saints, and that's an important word that we want to camp out on for a minute. He calls them saints. Now, just the other day when I was uh, t- actually teaching on this passage uh, somewhere, people were talking about having questions about saints. Okay, well, when I think of saints, are we really saints as Christians? Because when I think of saints, I think of Rome. I think of the church of Rome, and I think of those individuals that have been canonized by the church of Rome and called saints, and they're kind of out of reach. They're they're out of touch. I don't really know how to identify with them at all. Is this what Paul's referring to when he says saints? 
Or does he have something else in mind? Well, we know that when he says saints, he's talking to Christians. He's talking to members of the church, those who are in union with Christ, those who are members of his body. That is who saints are. This is who makes up the church. Not, not people that, that one church or another has called saints, but those who are members of Christ. That's who makes up the church. Again, the word saints here uh, comes from a, a very common root word in Greek that we see all throughout the New Testament. In fact, the, the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be thy name, that's the same underlying root word there, saint, hallowed. Uh, saints, therefore, are those who are consecrated, those who are set apart, those who are hallowed, and furthermore, are cleansed by the washing of regeneration. They are those who through baptism are united to Christ and made living members of his body. That's who he's addressing. That's what a saint is. All those, whether Jew or, or Gentile, are numbered among the saints to whom Paul is writing in Ephesus. They are members of the household of God, chapter 2, verse 19. The saints are a holy temple to the Lord and a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. This is what it means to be a saint. Not someone that the Church of Rome or any other church or any other denomination or any other tradition has, has lifted up above all the other Christians and all the other members of Christ and canonized. That's not what is meant by a saint. What is meant by a saint is a, is a member of Christ a piece of the building in which God dwells, a part of the temple to the Lord. The saints are then called faithful in Christ Jesus. So he calls them saints. He's writing to the saints and faithful in Christ Jesus. The reality of who they are objectively, saints, objectively, they're saints, calls them to what? To live in accordance to that reality, i.e. Be, be faithful. Those who are saints are called to be faithful. They are faithful. They were called as saints, and therefore they are to walk worthy of the calling with which they are called, as the Apostle Paul says in chapter 4, verse 1. Notice, the Ephesian Christians were saints and faithful in Christ Jesus. This is kind of another one of those things, especially when we are reading the Pauline epistles, that we kind of breeze over, these, these key prepositional phrases. And this one occurs multiple, multiple times here in the first uh, 14, uh, 14 verses, not chapters, excuse me. The, the first 14 verses, Paul uses in Christ or in him or some variant over 11 times in those verses alone. In Christ Jesus. They are saints and faithful in Christ Jesus. That means that neither their identity as saints nor their calling to faithfulness can be divorced from their union with Christ. Our sainthood as believers, our call to be faithful, to walk worthy of the calling to which we have been called, cannot be divorced from our union with Christ. Anything that we are or do as Christians, as saints, as members of the body of Christ, only can be defined, only can be seen, only can be understood in light of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ, which is a, a major theme of the book of Ephesians. Their faithfulness 
also must be seen in relation to their union with Christ. Too often, the Christian life, with all of its various duties, with all of its various callings, with all of its various conduct, I think is viewed apart from Christ. We say, well, I need to read my Bible. I need to go to church. I need to lead or participate in family worship. I need to do all of these things that the Bible calls me to do. That's true. That's good. That's the duties of faithful living, yes, but they're not separate from Christ. They are to be done in Christ because we are in Christ. It flows out of our union with Christ, our our Christian life. Our religion flows out of our union with Christ, not not some separate thing over here. That's because Christ is the chief cornerstone of the church, chapter 2, verse 20, the Apostle Paul says. Saints are only built up and grow in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ so far as they are built upon him. This means that the church has no identity if it is not the church of Jesus Christ. It only has identity as the church of Jesus Christ. Saints are only saints, and saints are only faithful insofar as they are in Christ Jesus. This is definitional for our identity as believers in Christ. And that's why Paul says this over and over again, in him, through him, by him, in Christ, in Christ, over and over again in this epistle He's pointing the Ephesian believers and also us to our identity in Christ Jesus. We're not defined by what church we go to. We're not defined by what denomination we belong to. We're not defined by our role in society. Those things are are part of who we are, yes. But ultimately, what defines us as saints is that we are in Christ Jesus. So what is the occasion for writing? Why did Paul write this epistle? What, What gave him the idea to do so? Well, this epistle, unlike many of Paul's other letters, was not occasioned by some polemic or practical need, at least insofar as we can tell from the text. Uh, we've been going through Corinth, uh, the, the letter to 1 Corinthians, uh, in, 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 on the Lord's Day mornings for a couple of years now. We, we know the, the church in Corinth was spinning out of control and all sorts of practical issues. They couldn't even get the Lord's Supper right. Galatia had been infiltrated by Judaizing false teachers. There's, there's kind of early forms of Gnosticism, uh, false teaching and Gnosticism happening at the church and Colossae. So all those letters were occasioned by a practical or a polemical need, Paul's pastoral heart, to defend the church, to instruct the church in a better way. But not the epistle to the Ephesians insofar as we can tell from the text. He doesn't address any specific sin that was happening in the church in Ephesus. He doesn't doesn't address any specific division or false teaching or heresy that was taking place in the church in this epistle. Paul's primary goal, I think, is pastoral. His primary pastoral concern is not corrective, but summative and preventative. He wants to make sure that they understood all of the doctrine that he taught them. How he showed them they are to live as members of Christ himself. How they are to walk in the the Lord, walk worthy of the calling to which that they have been called. I think that is his primary concern. He gives a mature summary of the theology that he had delivered in his time in Ephesus when he was ministering there. Now let's turn to some historical background just briefly. 
the city of Ephesus. The ancient city of Ephesus was a prominent Roman city of over 200,000 people, which was a huge city for that time. It sat on a major trade route about 50 miles from Patmos, where John, the Apostle John, was exiled, and that was the closest uh, city of the seven churches to which John is writing. The city of Ephesus was the greatest emporium in Asia Minor at that time. It was a rich and a, and a lavish city. It was home to the great temple of Diana or Artemis, which was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Artemis was the goddess of fertility, and the city had a theater which could seat about 20,000, which would still be big today. It was also home to various temples of emperor worship, in summation, Ephesus was known for its wealth, its power, its fame, its superstition, and its idolatry in the ancient world. It was a prominent and an important city in which Christ, using the Apostle Paul, planted his church. Now let's look at the historical background of Paul's involvement in Ephesus. So Paul's ministry in Ephesus, and uh, you may or may not know, that takes place primarily in, in chapter 19 of the book of Acts. Paul's ministry at Ephesus took place during his third missionary journey. When Paul first arrives in Ephesus, he finds about 12 disciples, the text said, who had not yet received the Holy Spirit. They'd only been baptized into John's baptism, Acts 19, 1 through 3. Paul, when he finds these disciples, he, he tells them, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him, who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. And then he baptized them in the name of the Lord Jesus, Acts 19, 4 and 5. After this, Paul then lays his hands upon these disciples after they've been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit comes upon them at that time. And this is evidenced by their speaking with new tongues and by their prophesying, Acts 19, verse 6. Paul spent the next three months reasoning and persuading in the synagogues concerning the things of the kingdom of God, Acts 19, verse 8. When he's, when he's reasoning and, and arguing for the Christian religion, when, she, when he's preaching in the synagogues, this causes dissension between the Jews, which the text says spoke evil of the way. That's what Christianity was called at that time, the way. They spoke evil of the way and the disciples. There was a, 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 div, a division that was breaking out between the disciples of Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, and the Jews at that time. Paul then withdraws from the Jews and he remains with the disciples, the text tells us in Acts 19.9, which is, I think, addressed in the book of Ephesians, the dividing wall between Jew and Greek that has been brought down in Christ, that's been destroyed in Christ. They've been made into one new man. We'll talk a little bit about that later and as we get into our series. But we see this even taking place here in Ephesus, and the disciples no doubt, no doubt had to deal with this on a daily basis. Paul kept this up for two years until all who dwelt in Asia, the surrounding region around Ephesus, heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks, 1910. During his ministry in Ephesus, God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, the book of Acts tells us. Christ is displaying his victory. As Paul's preaching the gospel to the Ephesians, Christ is displaying his victory over principalities and over powers through Paul. So much so that aprons and handkerchiefs are taken from Paul's body, and then they're brought to the sick and the diseased, 
and they were healed. And even evil spirits went out from them, the text tells us in Acts 19, 11, and 12. So an apron or a handkerchief is taken from the Apostle Paul. It's brought to somebody who's demon-possessed, and the demon shrieks and flees and leaves. It goes out from them just from a handkerchief. It's an amazing thing. Some of the local Jewish exorcists uh, actually attempt to duplicate these miracles. They see they're losing disciples. They see they're losing members of the synagogue to the way, and they're speaking evil of the way, and Paul's being per- persuasive with some of the Jews. And so they decide, well, we need, we need a piece of this. We need, we need something new, something fresh that's going to continue to attract and, and keep our people with us. They would go to those who had evil spirits, the text says, and they would say to these demon-possessed people, they would say to the spirits, we exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Well, on one occasion, the seven sons of a Jewish chief priest named Sceva tried this on a demon-possessed man. I'm sure you all know how that went. The evil spirit responded, Jesus I know, And Paul I know, but who are you? The demon-possessed man then leapt upon these seven sons, overpowered them, the text says, prevailed against them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Uh, Chapter 19, verses 13 through 16. So it didn't go well with them. Why is that? Because it's not enough to know of Jesus and go around preaching the, the Jesus whom Paul preaches. To to try to do miracles in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches is not enough. And I think that's what the whole book of Ephesians is about. We must be united to Christ. Union with Christ is what is necessary. Not knowing of Jesus, not having heard Jesus, but being truly united to him. Being a member of his body, a member of the church of Jesus Christ. That is what is necessary. The fame of of this event became known, the text tells us, to both Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus. Great fear then fell upon the whole region. They had heard what had happened, that this wasn't just a fluke with with Paul when when these other Jewish exorcists are trying to implement the same thing. It goes really wrong. You must actually know Christ, as Paul says. You must be united to Christ, as Paul says, or it's going to go really poorly for you. So everyone becomes afraid. Fear falls upon the whole region. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds, the text tells us. Many who practiced magic brought their books together and and burned them. They repented of their evil deeds. They repented of meddling with spirits, of, of idolatry. And the text tells us the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed over the evil spirits, over the false religion, over the unbelief and unfaithfulness of the Jews. It prevailed. And I think you see in that section, up to verse 20 of chapter 19 of the book of Acts, a wonderful contrast of true and false religion. And you also see Christian triumph, the triumph of the Christian faith in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, not by the sword, not by political means, but by the preaching of the gospel, by church planting, by prayer. Nothing more foolish than, oh, well, if you have a a demon-possessed man in your house, hold on, I know a guy, let me grab his handkerchief, and I'll bring it over, and he shall be healed. Nothing sounds more foolish than that. But that's the power that is displayed in the gospel of Jesus 
Christ. And that's what's happening here. We see this, this triumph over the culture, the triumph over the fake, uh, the fake religions, the false religions, the pagan religions of the area. The, the church wasn't just hiding. They were triumphing as Paul preached the gospel. The church in Ephesus was growing so rapidly that the pagan culture was diminishing. If you have your copy of scriptures open, uh, look at Acts 19, starting in verse 23. We will read down to 27. The pagan culture is diminishing and dying out. Verse 23, And about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation, other idol makers, and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned many away, away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Not for long. He came to, he came to turn the world upside down. Christ did. The craftsmen begin to chant, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. They're about to be out of a job, in other words. They, they call these men together, all the other craftsmen who are making idols, and say, listen, Paul has almost persuaded everyone in all of Asia, indeed the whole world, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The way is, is, is succeeding. It's triumphing. We're going to be out of a job if we don't do something. We must oppose this. So they begin to chant, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And soon the whole city gathers together, hearing these men chant this, and it's a tumultuous, confusing uproar, and a riot breaks out. Uh, the text tells us in verse 32, Some cried one thing, and some another, for the assembly was confused. And most of them did not know why they had come together. Paul tries to then speak to the crowd. Verse 34, But... When they found out he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Idolatry, just like sin, makes you stupid. After this uproar, Paul departed from Ephesus. After this uproar, the text tells us. He departs from Ephesus to Macedonia and Greece. Paul's ministry in Ephesus, I think, if you read this chapter and then read the book of Ephesians, displays the mighty power of the risen Christ working through his body, the church, by the Holy Spirit to prevail over the principalities, the powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age, and the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Ephesians 6, 12. When we're talking about spiritual warfare, we don't need to consult some manual we can, to figure out what it means. What does spiritual warfare look like? Here it is. This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like to prevail over those principalities and powers. We do it through Christ who already has. The same exceedingly great power which God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, <clears throat> far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age but also in that which is to come, 
is also at work in those who believe. That's an amazing thing that always stuns me if I sit and think about it for a minute. The same power which was in Christ during his life and his ministry, which raised Christ from the dead, is now at work in us who believe. What, what, what should we fear? What should we fear at that point? If the same power that rose Christ from the, from the grave is at work in us, what shall we fear? And we see an example of that as that same power goes resurrecting all of his people to life in Ephesus and continuing even into this day all throughout the world. The Ephesian church did not come into existence by gimmicks, by political activism, or by the will of man, but by the power of Christ. So too, <clears throat> they could not prevail over their threefold enemy, the flesh, the world, and Satan, by anything other than the power of Christ. Until the preaching of Paul had come to Ephesus, the Ephesians were what? Dead in trespasses and sins. Chapter 2, verse 1. Excuse me. Until the preaching of Paul, the Ephesians were dead in trespasses and sins, sons of disobedience, walking according to the prince of the power of the air, and conducting themselves in the lusts of their flesh. Chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. The Ephesians, prior to the preaching of the Apostle Paul, were children of wrath until God, through the preaching of Paul, who is rich in mercy because of his great love, made them alive together with Christ. 2, 4, and 5. Now the Ephesians, Paul says, were his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Chapter 2, verse 10. And they would only continue to prevail as, as Christians through Christ, through union with Christ, by putting off the old man, by putting on the new man, chapter 4, verses 22 through 24, and by imitating God as his dear children in Christ Jesus, chapter 5, verse 1. Paul's ministry in Ephesus, again, I think, is a grand display of the victorious power of the church's new life in union with Christ Jesus. I want to touch briefly on the importance of the Ephesian church in early Christianity. Uh, I mentioned this during our series on the seven uh, letters of Christ to the churches in Asia Minor. But Ephesus not only was an important city secularly, but also an important city as a hub for an important church uh, to early Christianity. Paul's ministry there uh, didn't end when he departed from Ephesus. He then dispatched Timothy to Ephesus to continue shepherding the people and to deal with false teachers who were there. We see this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. The two letters Paul wrote to Timothy, I think were no doubt read to the churches and the congregations in Ephesus, but I think it also formed the basis and the foundation and, and, and the structure of Timothy's continued preaching and teaching efforts there in Ephesus. Ephesus was home to one of the most important churches in the early church. Many important men had been sent by God to plant and lead this church. Probably no New Testament church outside of Jerusalem had so many eminent and equipped and capable ministers as Ephesus. The Apostle Paul obviously served there. Priscilla, Aquila, and Apollos labored there, as did Tychius 
and Timothy. Tradition, specifically Irenaeus, the early church father Irenaeus, tells us that the apostle John also had a close relationship with the Ephesian church, saying that he wrote his gospel and his epistles in Ephesus or from Ephesus. Moreover, the first of the risen Christ's letters to the churches in Asia Minor was written to the church in Ephesus. And Ephesus held closely to the doctrine which they had received. Jesus commends them for testing those who say that they are apostles and are not, Revelation 2.2. The church was diligent to discern between false teaching and true teaching and to reject false teaching, but they also were diligent to persevere in good works. But nevertheless, for all of their orthodoxy and for all of their orthopraxy, Jesus warns them in Revelation 2.4 that they had left their first love. Their theology and their practice had been disconnected or become disconnected from their hearts. Their beliefs and their lifestyles were good, but it didn't flow from love to Christ. To this day, uh, while billions of Christians, including those that are here tonight, Read the letters of Paul and Jesus to the Ephesian church with great joy, with great profit. The city whose name bears their inscription still lies uninhabited and in ruins. Jesus warned to remove their lampstand from them if they did not repent, and they did not repent. This should be a warning to us, lest we too fall and our lampstand be removed. Let's look at some of the major themes with the time we have left of the epistle to the Ephesians. The epistle to the Ephesians can be pretty neatly divided into two major halves. You have a doctrinal or a didactive half, which spans chapters 1 through 3, rehearsing who the Christians in Ephesus were as the church of Jesus Christ. And then you have a practical half spanning chapters 4 through 6, which instructs them how they are to live as the church. One way you could think of it as, and this goes nicely with what we say often here at ROPC, chapters 1 through 3 are the indicatives of the gospel, and chapters 4 through 6 are the imperatives of the gospel. Let's look at some of the major themes that that Paul covers in these two halves. The church of Jesus Christ, I think, is one of the uh, primary themes. If, If you had to sum up the book of Ephesians, you could say that it teaches us who the church of Jesus Christ is. Is Just like its sister epistle, the, the, the letter to the Colossians, teaches us who the Jesus Christ of the church is. So Ephesians, who is the church of Jesus Christ? It teaches us who she is, how she came to exist, who she is made up of, and how she is to live in union with her own members and amongst the world around her. Christ is the head of the church, his body. Chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. The church is made up of all the saints and faithful in Christ Jesus, as we said. As her head, Christ fills her with all the fullness. Verse 22 of chapter 1. His body therefore and thereby grows in maturity to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. She is his body, but she is called to grow up into maturity as his body. Paul also represents the church as Christ's bride in chapter 5. This echoes the teaching of the Old Testament in which Israel is represented as Yahweh's bride in in, in many books, specifically the book of Hosea, Song of Solomon. And as the body of the true Israel, namely Jesus Christ, the church is therefore the new Israel, and she is married to her head, 
God in Christ. Christ gave his life to present the church to himself as what? A glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she, that she should be holy and without blemish. Chapter 5, verse 27. The church consists not only of believing Jews, but also of Gentiles. She is a one new man comprising both Jew and Gentile i.e. they're all members of the true Israel in Jesus Christ, chapter 2, verse 15. The church is the household of God, the Apostle Paul says, an edifice built on the chief cornerstone who is Christ, which grows into a holy temple in the Lord. All those who have been called as saints, all those who are faithful in Christ Jesus, whether they're Jew or whether they're Gentile, Paul says are being built together for a dwelling place of God, in the spirit. This is who the church of Jesus Christ is. The church's existence is rooted in the good pleasure of God's will. The church and all of her members have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. In other words, there's no, there's no answer to the question of why does the church exist outside of God's pleasure and God's counsel and God's decree, he chose to save his church. He chose to build this temple unto himself, a dwelling place for himself by the Spirit. Moreover, in the book of Ephesians, the church of Jesus Christ, her existence, the reality of her new life is Christological. It's Christocentric. It's Christofoundational. The church is rooted in Jesus Christ. He is the exclusive conduit, one commentator said, of all her salvation blessings and new life. Election flows from Christ to the church. Redemption, forgiveness, and the gift of the Spirit, all the blessings of salvation flow to her from her head, Christ. As we said, in Christ, or some variant, appears 11 times in the first 14 verses alone. The church draws her origin, her identity, her calling, her duties, and the maintenance of her new resurrection life in Christ from Christ. The church is united to Christ as his body, his bride, his house, his temple. None of this would be apart, possible apart from the work of Christ and his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his, his session at the right hand of God the Father, and his future glorious return. Paul, throughout the epistle, continually, continually points again and again to the work of Christ, the full redemptive work of Christ, including his eminent future glorious return as the foundation of who the church of Jesus Christ is. She is united to Christ, her head. In Christ, the members of Christ's church are God's dear children. They're given the Holy Spirit and the adoption of sons. United to Christ, who is the Son of God, the church participates in the life of Christ as sons of God. That's what adoption means. That's part of the union that is, that is had in Christ by the church. They have received the spirit of adoption, the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of their inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. They've been united to Christ as sons by the Spirit, not only in his death, but also 
in his resurrection. That's an important part to recognize about the teaching on union with Christ. We're united to him in his death, but we are also united to him in his resurrection by union with the risen Christ, the members of Christ have passed from death to life. We'll see that in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead also raised them from the dead and is still presently at work in them. They are therefore called and empowered by the Spirit to put off the old man and put on the new man, to walk in love as Christ also loved them, to imitate Christ as children of God. As resurrected sons, they must walk as the resurrected Son of God walks. Christ is their pattern, he is their type, their foundation, and the source of all their power by and through his Spirit which is given to them. Christ continues to build, grow, and edify his church by the Spirit, and when he returns at the end of the age, he shall finally present her to himself a glorious church, holy and without blemish. Chapter 5, verse 27. Finally, the church exists to the praise of his glory. Her chief end and the chief end of her redemption is for the glorification and enjoyment of God. That is why the church exists, to glorify and to enjoy God fully forever. Another main theme we will see is the Trinitarian salvation. We kind of hit on some of those themes already. The Trinitarian salvation, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit all are are put on display before us in the book of Ephesians uh, as our Savior. God the Father is the fount of the believer's salvation. The entire panoply of blessings which every Christian receives proceeds from the Father. We'll look at that next week in verse 3 of chapter 1. The Father chose us in Christ from eternity past. This, this choice of us, this election of the church, was rooted in the Father's great love for us, that we should be holy and without blame before him. The Father's choice, in other words, is, is wholly gracious. It's rooted in the rich, riches of God's mercy and of his free love. It's not rooted uh, in anything foreseen in us or anything actual in us now but rather according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. The blessings of the Father's choosing results in what? Our holiness, our adoption as sons, the forgiveness of our sins, and inheritance, and the gift of the Holy Spirit's indwelling. All of those are seen in the verses that we read earlier, verses 3 through 14. In chapter 3, verse 11, Paul ascribes the whole of the church's redemption in Christ to the eternal purpose of God the Father. The Father's purpose of choosing is that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, chapter 2, verse 7. In other words, the members of the church are eternal trophies, or as one commentator put it, living monuments of the Father's grace, love, and mercy to us who are unworthy but have been made worthy, made accepted in the Beloved. The Father does not save individuals in isolation. That's also important. He doesn't save individuals in isolation. Rather, he places them in fellowship 
and communion with one another, other saved persons in the church. He saves individuals, but then he places them in his own home as his own children, as brothers and sisters. That's why they're to walk in love toward one another. The members are many, but they are one body in Christ. They have one spirit. They have one faith, one baptism, and access to one Father. That's the beauty. He's brought the many and made them one in Christ. God the Son, Jesus Christ, accomplished in time the salvation of all those whom the Father had chosen in eternity. The blessings and benefits of the salvation to which the Father chose the church to proceed from, chose the church to, proceeds from the Lord Jesus Christ. The church is chosen in Christ, verse 4. Adopted through Jesus Christ, verse 5. Has redemption and forgiveness of sins through the blood of Christ, verse 7. Possesses an inheritance through Christ, verse 11. And through him is sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, verse 13. The church, in other words, has every spiritual blessing, not just from the Father, but in Christ. The new life of Christians is by union with Christ. Before, they were dead in sin. But through union to Christ and with Christ, they have been made alive. The church is a new creation in Christ Jesus, created unto good works. The gospel which Paul preached is nothing other than the unsearchable riches of Christ, he says in chapter 3, verse 8. That means that the gospel cannot be divorced from Christ. It is his lordship over all principalities and powers, another important theme in the book of Ephesians. His his lordship, his victory over all principalities and powers, that's the reason he's able to redeem his church. He can be her savior. He can redeem her. He can fill her only because he is Lord over all. God the Spirit is seen as Savior as well. It is God the Spirit who applies the redemption accomplished by Christ to those whom the Father chose in eternity past. Paul calls every blessing which the church enjoys through Christ spiritual in verse 3. I think that this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. I don't think Paul is dealing with platonic dualism here, but too often we, we think that way, don't we, kind of in the modern church. We hear spiritual blessings, we think of spiritual things, unseen things. But does salvation, does being in Christ, does being a member of the church of Jesus Christ, being his body, his bride, does that have impact in our life, our physical life? Not just our spiritual life. Yes, we have spiritual blessings. We'll be saved. We have an inheritance that we can't even comprehend. But does it affect things in our lives? Yes, of course, or at least it should. I don't think he's dealing with spiritual blessings as opposed to uh, physical blessings so much as he's talking about the Holy Spirit here in this verse. Every benefit of salvation, which we read in verses 3 through 14, must be understood as the Spirit's work of applying to each believer what the Father has purposed and the Son has accomplished in time. The Holy Spirit, therefore, in time preserves each believer in Christ, applying all the benefits, applying all the blessings of salvation to them. That's why each are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, as we read. The Spirit is himself the down payment of the fullness which belongs to the church in Christ's victory, verse 14. We do not yet experience all that Christ has purchased for us, but through the Spirit, 
The church has a title to it and is assured that she shall consummately experience it at Christ's return. The ongoing ministry and work of the Spirit in the church and in each individual Christian's life gives them assurance, assurance that one day they shall partake of the fullness that is in Christ Jesus. It will, be, it will be their present and full possession at that day. The Spirit continues to enlighten and mature Christians. God the Holy Spirit also empowers the church. The church exists by the power of the church. It was the Spirit, or by the power of the Spirit. The Spirit was one who raised them from spiritual death, united them to Christ, applied all the benefits of Christ. But part of that doesn't just stop when they get saved, when they say amen at the end of the sinner's prayer, and that's it. And they write in the front of their Bible the day that they were saved from hell. No, it goes beyond into everything. Everything in their life is affected from that point on. The power of the Spirit working in us to convict us, to conform us more to the image of Christ day in and day out through the means of grace, through communion, through baptism, through the Lord's day. The church cannot continue to exist apart from the Spirit. She has no connection to Christ and his resurrection life apart from the Spirit. This is why Paul prays that Christians would be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. All right, a couple of quick applications, pastoral applications. Why should we study the book of Ephesians? Why study the book of Ephesians? I think one of the most important things, and as you read this, hopefully afresh, you go home and read it again this week, it teaches us a holistic faith. The book of Ephesians teaches a holistic faith faith. Uh, Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary, uh, one of their mottos is head, heart, hands. That's also the motto, if you want to say, of Ephesians. What does it mean to be the church of Jesus Christ? Well, it should affect how we think, should affect our head, what we believe, but it should also affect our heart, should also affect our hands, how we live, what we do. It impacts every part of our life. That's what being a member of Christ is. This word fullness appears over and over again in the book of Ephesians. That fullness flows in and overflows every part of our life. Secondly, it teaches us to see ourselves not as individuals only, but as members of the church. The book of Ephesians is, is a declaration that as, member, as individuals that are united to Christ, we are then placed into the body of Christ. That it's not just us alone, but that we've been brought in to his body. And therefore, we must live in his body. It gives us, as we saw, a robust Trinitarian vision. Each member of the Godhead, as you study the book of Ephesians, we will see, and on your own as you study, each member of the Godhead participating in our salvation. And the triune God as a whole, the whole Godhead being the source of our salvation redemption. Paul says in chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, the Father, according to the power that works in us, the Spirit, to him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ, the Son, to all generations forever and ever. Amen. In, in different denominations, different churches, you'll have different emphases, right? Evangelicals love to talk about Jesus. Pentecostals love to talk about the Holy Spirit. Reformed guys love to talk about God the Father and the doctrine of election. 
But we need to see, and I think it's a good corrective in the book of Ephesians, to see the triune God in our salvation. The triune God in our life and in our living unto him for his glory. Lastly, it serves as a warning. Studying the book of Ephesians serves as a warning. A church which received such full and rich teaching, like what we read in the book of Ephesians, could turn away, could have its lampstand removed. That should serve as a warning to us, to our denominations, to us as individuals, that we not stray from Christ. That no matter how much we know, how much robust theology we have, we must have union with Christ. We must stay close to him, know him, love him, and serve him with our head, our heart, and our hands. Amen.